I got a little bit too good at making them, and eventually I created one which could tune into the past. That's right, I could actually tune into and go back to, if no one's looking, the past. And through lots of hard work and good fortune, I still have one of my magic radios right here. There it is. This one is called Rodney. Rodney 2. The first one blew up, don't you know? Long story, but another time, maybe. But as my regular gang know, the best bit is that I can travel anywhere I like from the comfort of my big, altogether now, old, squeaky, leather armchair. Oh, that's lovely. And we'll be taking a trip together very soon. Would you like that? Oh, that's super duper. First, though, I thought I might highlight something very glorious. Can you hear that? Hmm. Do you know what that is? It's the sound of my big log. That's right. Do you know why? Well, for the first time since June, I have started to feel a bit chilly. Now that the nights are drawing in, so I thought I'd light myself a fire. Keep warm. Right then, let's get you going with a bit of music. So far in the series, we've managed to not hear from a chap who pretty much dominated the charts in the 1940s in Great Britain. He was famous for having a face like a sliced orange, and he played a tiny miniature guitar called a ukulele. Ukulele. Ukulele, that's right. I'm talking about George Formby. Now then, you've probably heard some of his visual and dental top ten hits, but this is a tune that you might not have heard, which is perhaps due to its rather racy subject matter. This is a song from my humongous collection of ATS 7 RPM records called Fan Like Fanny, and it's a sad tale about a shabby burlesque dancer. It was written in 1935, but featured in the 1939 film what do you call Trouble Brewing, and is more than likely a tribute, if that's the word, to Fanny Bryce, actress and part-time Ziegfeld Forest dancer, a performer who's portrayed on the Broadway stage by Barbara Streisand, yes, in the musical Funny Girl. Anyway, the title of the song itself is a bit of a euphemism, in that Fanny is described as being fan-like. Which is a type of window, so it's ridiculous. When in fact, what he actually meant was fan dance, which is a rather rude dance routine, probably performed by Fanny Bryce at one time or another. If you listen to the words, you can certainly hear that he has a pretty low opinion of her, whoever he's singing about, as he describes her as frowsy, a 17th century word meaning stale smelling and unwashed. Hmm, lovely. Here's a slightly miserable-sounding George Formby Denman, a rather strange song about a lady of ill repute. Enjoy. <laughs> That's the best end where the nightclubs thrive Down into a dive you go There's a jazz queen, she's a has-been, has-been, Lord knows what Every night she's there on show She dances underneath a magic spell She's full of charm and dear and stout as well. It's 
66, but look 16. A friend don't know, I never face is clean. Fan night, fan is a frozen night, club queen. See her glide around the floor, then glide around into the pub next door. Fan light, fan is a frozen night, club queen. She looks well in the line, a queen all the time, you get your money's worth. By day you stay in the second time on earth. She waltzes in the west end shops and waltzes out in between two cops. Sunlight fun is a frozen night club queen. She's a peach, but understand she's called a peach because she's always canned. Sunlight fun is a frozen night club queen. When she's dressed, she's like me West. She wears too soft and lives upon her chest. Sunlight fun is a frozen night club queen. She looks well in the line, a queen all the time. You get your money's worth. By day you stay in the second time on earth. Every morn at the break of day, they call for the empties and they cart away. Fun like fun is a thousand nights love queen. Through the Grand Tub Shakespeare. 
Let's see what we can find here. Right. 
Was this a fluke, do you think, or did she have some special gifts? Well, we just don't know. It's all very shrouded in mystery, to be honest, but people began to leave these offerings hanging outside to appease her and to make sure that she didn't cast any spells on them. So, I suppose that when her little boss turned to stone, it was something of a shock then? Ah, uh, it were. She sounds quite a self-publicist. You might say that. But mum I knew she were married to a local carpenter called Toby Shipton, so they had to keep them sweet. Everyone needs a carpenter. Now, the thing that fascinates me most is that in 1862, a local journalist wrote his own version of her now famous prophecies, and it was that printed version which has made its way into the public consciousness as being her original words. Is that right? Now, 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 now steady on, we, we can't be absolutely certain about that. Well, yes, we can, as he admitted in an interview some years later that he uh, made it all up. Not only that, but if you study the text, you could quickly see that it is written in distinctly long 17th century language. The rhyming couplets, for example, the world to an end shall come in 1881. Well, I'm sure, point is what exactly? You see this? You do know what that is, don't you? A, a bunch of keys? No, that. Responsibility. That's what that is. It didn't happen, did it? It's all made up. Look, that's not the point. It's a tourist attraction. People like to come here and see the petrified things hanging outside. And they like to believe in the lies as well, I presume. Now, now, see here, I'm trying to run a business, and we're very popular. We get over a hundred people a day in summer. I don't need twerks like you coming up from back London making fun of our heritage. Oh, please, Fred, Fred, no, don't get me wrong. I'm not making fun. Look, you're all safe, you're welcome, and I think you'd better be going now. Well, Fred, it, it, it's been lovely to meet you, and I'm much obliged to you for your historical insights surrounding the game. Get out, Bob, shut up. Much obliged to you. Well, as I scrambled hastily through the undergrowth, I had a wonderful view of the hanging artifacts dangling in this back passage. Oh, wait, it's, it's very slippery. I just need to steady myself. I'll just grab this rope here to get my footing. Ha, ha, ha. 
I can't see that happening. Not in my lifetime, at least. Join me again on my city life. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. That was my gypsy life with our raving countryside reporter, Manilander. And to join me in twiddling, twiddling my nose see what else we can find. Evening with Mammy, with Melody Fishwick. Here's a thing. Comfortably. Good. Then we'll begin. Dry out. That's 
the ticket. <laughs> well, Nobby, I think it's time for us to go now. <laughs> Don't be sad, Nobby. The nice girls and boys will be back again tomorrow. Won't you, children? <laughs> we all love Nobby, Nobby the clown. <laughs> when he comes playing, there's never a frown. He's full of mischief all over the town. He's Nobby, Nobby, Nobby the clown. Goodbye, children. <laughs> Join Melody Fishwick with Listening with Mummy tomorrow at the same time. But next on the BBC, it's Robert's World. village of Kettlegrit, as we catch up with the residents in our dreary drama of simple country folk. Come with us now to the village pub, where we see what's going on in The Fletchers. Quiet, isn't it? What is, George? The pub? Uh, give it time. It's only half past twelve. <laughs> no, Jack, not the pub. Life. In this here village. Uh, how do you mean? Well, nothing ever really happens. Oh, I, I don't know. Nadja Greenwood had that incident last week when he left the pub with Dickie Jeffrey's ass by mistake. Well, yes. But that wasn't interesting, was it? It, it made me laugh. What about last month when Betty from the farm shop got a new bike? A bright blue one. We could see it for miles. That was quite interesting. No, Jack. There's bigger things than bikes and flat caps going on out there. Where? Out there in big world. Do you mean Grassington? No, Jack. Further afield. Oh, Dorothy, you shouldn't be thinking about further afield. Next thing you know, you'll be getting tramped to Leeds and discovering shops, and then where will we be? Hmm? They have shops in Leeds. <laughs> good morning, my little sheep. Ah, good morning, Reverend Beelzebub. Uh, how's your good self this fine day? I'm very well indeed, Jack. Mrs. Simpleton, how are you today? Oh, disillusioned and a bit down, if I'm honest with you, Reverend. Oh, dear. Has our good Lord been ignoring you recently? Have you been saying your prayers? Oh, yes, Reverend, I have. But he doesn't seem to answer them. Uh, can I answer your prayers with a little stipple, Reverend? Oh, really, I shouldn't, but a dry sherry would wet my whistle very nicely, I think. Uh, coming right up. 
In fact, Dorothy, here's something which might cheer you up. Oh? Yes, it's, it's a little of my baking. Oh. Yes, and I made a batch of these biscuits and dropped a few off at the farm shop and a basket of them at the post office. And these here, I'm just taking over to give Mrs. Lavender at the Women's Institute for their tabletop sale at the weekend. Oh. Oh, they're very nice. Why don't you try one, Jack? Uh, no, you're all right, Reverend. Uh, it'll spoil me dinner if I do, but thank you all the same. Here's your sherry, Reverend. God bless you, Jack. That's your three and four, please. E hello, Nancy. You're looking flustered. Well, I feel, I feel most unusual. Julian, what's wrong? Well, I, I, I don't know, but, but, but I'm a bit, a bit, I'm a bit, I'm a bit thirsty. Here you go, then. Get this inside, Jack. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> you were thirsty, weren't you? I, 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 I was I. I, I I'd only gone to get both of you sending me food scoop on, and Mrs. Metcalf offered me one of these oats cakes that the vicar had brought. Oh, morning, Reverend. Morning, Nadra. They're very, 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 very good, but uh, they haven't half given me a thirst. Ooh, I think that bit has gone right to the edge. I'd better have another. Here you go, Nadra. Take this and go sit down. Thank you, Jack. I'll go. What exactly is in your biscuits, Reverend? Is it a secret recipe? Well, something like that. It's just the usual oats and barley and demerara, but these have got some special spices in them from my garden. Uh, uh, spices? Yes, but did you remember a couple of years ago, I had some charming students come and camp in my lower field. They helped me with trimming the hedges around the cemetery all summer long. It seems that they'd also planted a whole herb garden at one end, and this year they all flowered, and you know it smells lovely. Brings such a wonderful flavor, don't you think? Oh, you wouldn't believe what's happening outside! Morning, Wing Commander. What's happening, Dickie? Pardon? I said good morning. And I said, what's happening? You know, Parsifal's got no clothes on. Pardon? That's my line. Pardon? I just told you. You know, Parsifal's got no clothes on. Do you care? Why has he got no clothes on? Pardon? Nadia, have a look through the window and see if you can see what's going on. Pardon? Oh, don't you start. Make it as the day he was born, yes? Running up and down the high street wearing nothing but his gumboots and a big silly grin. Uh, oh, my word. Uh, Daisy, you'd better go downstairs and uh, check the barrels or something. It's better you don't see this. All right, Mr. Simpleton. Nadja, uh, can you see his Nadja face? Wake up. He's falling asleep, that's what he is. Ooh, biscuits. Lovely. I think I can see Constable Robinson now. He's on his bike. He's trundling along. Just, 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 just trundling along. Oh, he's stopping. He's nothing to work with, Eli. Hang on. They're coming this way. Hecky, don't, Jack. Do something. Like what, does he? I've never had to handle an Hecky's father before. Let Constable Robinson deal with him. He's got a truncheon. What? He knows how to deal with difficult situations. They're trained for stuff like this. 
What the heck did you do that for? said Mary. He looked at her, but he couldn't make out her features which alarmed him. She appeared to be smiling, but he couldn't be certain as it was too dark. Why should you care? he said as he slipped the car into drive and pulled out onto the freeway. He always drove the same route, and this time was no different, apart from the giraffes which were gaining on him. Did you check the cupboards? said Joan as she slipped the letters back into the rack on the side table. I need to know if they agreed to the arrangement, she continued. But by now, Harold had stopped listening as he was too busy practicing a very difficult passage in his new trombone concerto. Peter just watched from the balcony. Do you think I care? shouted Dolan, which made everyone jump. If these giraffes get any closer, then heads are gonna roll. So Martha closed the door, and with it ended a chapter in her life. Thank God for that, commented Justin, scratching his shoulder. How bet the gun would freak out if he knew what had really happened. And then, as the pianist came to the end of his tune, the bar fell silent. Chuck sat back, threw his cards on the table, and rolled his cigar between his lips. There you go, gentlemen. Martha looked at him with suspicion, and eventually Dolan broke the silence. Will you people keep the noise down? I'm trying to concentrate. The dog, writhing in pain, yelped softly as Joan put the freshly laundered towels back in the cupboard. There, she said. That should last until Thanksgiving. But Chuck had already hit the bar and was downing his ninth shot of pure spirit. Farway scanned the readouts and boomed urgent instructions. If the Silurian rebels hear about this, we are completely doomed, he said as he strode the full length of the command deck. Outside, the giraffes were clearly visible against the early morning sky. Dolan looked at his watch and then switched on the radio. Aretha Franklin's killing me softly was playing on the station he found. Hey, said Chuck, that reminds me of a story I once read about a kid. But his words were cut short by Oscar. But his words were cut short by Oscar, who ran into the room quite clearly upset with parts of his clothing on fire. Christ almighty, help me, he wailed. But the salmon never rose at that time of day. Roger knew this, and using his extensive experience, he selected another fly, which he fitted to the line with skilled speed, and cast his hook deeper into the body of water. He watched the late afternoon sunlight sparkle on the ripples of the great lake, and he filled his lungs with the fresh mountain air. Ah, how he loved this time of year! But now, it was all the more poignant after the death of his father. Just then, the door opened, and Dave's familiar head appeared. Who's up for a walk-on part? he announced. Everyone looked and stared at each other, but no one wanted to speak first. I'll do it, said Harold, putting his trombone back on the stand. Right then, come on, said Dave, it's showtime. Dave returned to his study, 
and sat down in front of his typewriter. The white sheet of paper tempted him with the first letter of the first line of the first blank page. Taking a big breath, he began, and the keys tapped furiously. Harold threw his head back and sighed a huge sigh of relief. It hadn't been his intention to drive to Nova Scotia, but hey, what the hell? Now that he was there, he might as well enjoy the adventure. Sitting back, Dave relished the moment. At last, he'd found a character to begin his story, and he felt a small rush of self-satisfaction that he had a huge cast of actors to draw upon in moments of writer's block. <laughs> Did you enjoy that? Did you work out what was going to happen? Hmm? Very well done. Writer's block isn't something which I ever suffer from, but it was interesting to hear about Dave and how he had a head full of characters to jump into the limelight to help him out when he needed it, wasn't it? I bet that story had you wondering where it was going. Ha <laughs> ha! Well, it's time for another story now, and one which will also, hopefully, keep you guessing right until the end. This next one is a story which is entitled, Coming Home. <clears throat> the long walk to the execution chamber was the hardest journey that Jerry had ever endured. He was a fit man who always looked after himself, but today he was weak and his feet dragged. The officers at either side escorted him in silence, while from the distance shouts of encouragement echoed along the corridors. Eventually, they entered the room and he was ushered to a seat, whilst the staff prepared the bed where he would soon be strapped down and served his sentence. His hands were locked, and the sweat was stinging his eyes as he shook his head like a dog, spraying the salt water into the air. It sparkled in shafts of sunlight coming from a high window near the ceiling, and all around him was a blur of activity. But he was so gripped in the moment that he closed his eyes to delay the inevitable. Don't worry, son, said a voice close by. It was just a bad dream. And he felt a comforting hand stroking his forehead. Blinking into the darkness, he saw his father tucking him into bed, framed against the light from the hallway, and he could almost make out his warm smile. Take it easy now. Everything's going to be okay. The other said, and he turned to see them as they laid him out onto the bed. Straps were placed over his arms and legs, with each one locking in turn. He was shaking, and in his mind he kept repeating over and over how bitterly he regretted saying yes. If only I hadn't done that! If only! Amongst the efficient and silent movement all around the room, approaching footsteps could be heard along with urgent voices. Gentlemen, stop at the ceiling, please, said one of them. But the rest of the conversation was too quiet for Jersey here. Men in black suits, briefcases, and 
exchange some paperwork, and the next thing that he knew, they were releasing his restraints and leading him away. In a rare technicality and unique twist of fate, fresh evidence had revealed that he was an innocent man and free to go. All that was behind him now. The ordeal had been hard on his soul, and so too had been the flight back home. But here, as he reclined on a sun lounger at the side of his own pool, he breathed a huge sigh of relief. Beside him, on the table, Time magazine had run his story on the front pages. From a jack to a king, death row man acquitted hero. He lifted the cold beer to his lips, looked over at his beautiful wife swimming in the clear azure water as he dialed the number. Dad, hi, it's Joey. Hey, how are you doing, son? We're thinking of coming over for the weekend. His laughter joined the birdsong and exotic fragrances that rafted in from the far flower borders. Maybe I'll go surfing today, he thought calmly inside. He was glad to have the last twelve months behind him, but just then a voice spoke very closely and he turned. Come on, son, don't worry. Everything's gonna be fine. You just relax now. He opened his eyes and saw the same chamber once again, with its stark white walls, and before him was an official in medic's uniform preparing a syringe. He tried to call out, but his mouth was sealed, and all he could manage was to thrash uselessly as his eyes screamed in anguish, although no one was looking. If only... If only he hadn't met the friendly stranger in the departure lounge. Heal coffee, sir, said the smiling attendant as he raised his head back up. The heavy truth of his circumstances hit him softly. He was sitting in a comfortable aircraft seat on a night flight. He grinned nervously to himself and quickly checked his breast pocket for the travel sickness pills. And reading the label, he realized that his panic he had taken too many. They caused drowsiness and visual disturbances. And he laughed out loud. I'll take coffee, thanks. He smiled. There were beads of sweat now, glistening on his face. Is everything okay, sir? Yeah, fine, he said. Just fine. Sipping his coffee and looking out into the clear night sky, he gradually became aware of a face across the aisle, nervously looking in his direction. In the reflection of the window, it seemed a familiar face for some reason, and to avoid the embarrassment of asking, he searched his mind for clues to who it might be. And then it struck him. Oh, if only, if only I had the green to carry the hold off. Now. But now, it was too late. This was the kind stranger that asked him to carry on their bag as they were over the limit. Being a sucker for a good story and being too naive for his own good, he'd agreed. He spun round and looked over at the man who slides back and gave a sudden wave in his direction. In doing so, the drug-induced dreams of earlier came soaring back into his consciousness, and Joey rose quickly to 
deadlock. Sure enough, there were two bags, one his own and the other unfamiliar to him. He'd seen the future and relived it many times over, and he slumped back into his chair, covered his face and tried to work out what to do next. The dull roar of the aircraft engines became the sound of the air conditioning in the room, and even that faded away to the sound of a gentle voice quite close by. Thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. Thou preparest the table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Joey winced as he felt the needle going into his arm. And beyond the one-way glass on the far wall, the officials watched in silence as the priest closed his book and left the room. For everyone concerned, it was all over. Wasn't that a sad tale peppered with futile hope and dashed dreams of escape? Did did, did Joey escape his fate? Was it all a dream brought on by his medicine? Or was it just the fantasy of a condemned man? We will never know. What we do know is that this is the end of the program. And as much as it pains me to say so, I have to be going now, but before I do, I'd like to play you one last piece of music, as I have been doing for the last few months. I like to think that it's a nice way to send you off to bed, and so, from my vast archive of 78 RPM records, I have pulled one out for you, and this is a real showstopper. This is the Ambrose Orchestra, featuring Vera Lynn. From 1940, and a very popular, if rather sentimental little song entitled Good Night Children Everywhere, which is indeed the origin of many a children's presenter's signing off catchphrase, <laughs> Derek McCulloch. <laughs>
But now, dear ones, those gentle refrains are telling us that it's time to go. So, let's switch the old radio off and let it cool down, shall we? There we go. <clears throat> Did you enjoy your little trip with me and all the silly things that I found on my magic radio? Would you like to visit again? You would? Oh, how wonderful! Well, until then, this is your old friend, Uncle Reggie, wishing you very pleasant dreams and hoping that you sleep tightly, because I shall be thinking of you. Good night, children, wherever you are. Uncle Reggie's Magic Radio is a Corniche pastiche production and featured Dawn Lindsay. Acknowledgements and credits go to the generous community at freesounds.org. It was written and produced by Jay Bramwell Slater, who is currently attending therapy. You can get in touch with Uncle Reggie by writing to reg at bramwellslater.co.uk. You can also visit the website, http colon slash slash uncleregismagicradio.tumblr.com. He can be found on Facebook as Reginald Merriweather, as well as on Twitter, at The Real Reginald. This episode will be broadcast again next Sunday at the same time, and the next new episode will be broadcast on the last Sunday of October, which is the 27th, and will feature a full-length radio drama from 1950. All the podcasts are available on the website, as well as iTunes. But now, it's very nearly 11 o'clock.